name is Matthew, and I am one of the co-hosts of the podcast Audio Judo. I would like to welcome you to the first episode of our new limited series, Audio Judo Does Jazz. I am joined by my co-host of Audio Judo, Kyle. Hello, everybody. And we'll be joined by another voice in just a few seconds. As an overview, this is going to be a 16-part series focused on giving you an introduction to jazz, jazz legends, and all things associated with that. But because our knowledge level, Kyle and I specifically, in this particular area is lacking, we needed to bring an expert fan of jazz in, and also someone who we knew could really capture the essence of jazz. Some background on this host. Uh, I have known this man for 32 years now. We attended high school together, and we've been friends since then. Uh, his knowledge of music is only rivaled by his ability to express his point of view in such a way that makes me very, very jealous. I refer to him often on Audio Judo as show consultant Chris, as he is a reliable source when I'm having problems in my research. This new podcast was his idea, and he asked if it was something we were willing to get behind. And here we are several months later with a finished product. So let's welcome your host for Audio Judo Does Jazz, Chris Delisle. Hello, Chris. Hi, Matt. That was a very kind introduction. Yeah, well, thanks. All of it is true. Most of it. Most of it is true. <laughs> Say well, most, most of it. Most, most of it. So, Chris, now I know you're going to cover in great detail in your introduction podcast what you're hoping to achieve with the podcast, but can you give us a quick overview of, of what listeners can expect? A quick overview. Well, uh, we're going to take a journey. It's a musical journey. <laughs> um <laughs> Into the lives of about a dozen or so uh, jazz legends, and hopefully there will be some threads running through all of them that will connect them all. And I chose these specific artists for a reason, uh, or at least more than one reason, uh, the largest being that they're just the best. Um, that's a pretty good reason. I suppose yeah. that's a personal You're allowed feeling. to give personal opinion. It's okay. Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. basically uh, this whole podcast is just our opinions. That's pretty so, much. So. <laughs> right. But um, uh, this is a an attempt to put something positive into the world because there's been so much negative in the world. And if I can shine a little light on something and turn someone onto jazz, um, you know, if I get a few people thinking, yeah, all right, sure, then uh, I think it'll all be worth it. See, that's so nice because like, I feel like one of the, one of the notes that I wanted to talk a little bit about in this, this introduction was uh, uh, gatekeeping in the world of jazz music. And uh, are you both familiar with the term gatekeeping as it applies to like sociology? No, no, fill, fill me in. I, I'm not. He might be. No. I'm not. So, uh, so gatekeeping no. is the concept that uh, in any uh, subculture, like say, for example, comic book people who are very interested in comic books, or or I know Matthew's very into Star Wars. Uh, uh, there are people who are gatekeepers to those communities. There are people who have all the knowledge or a lot of the knowledge from those communities, and they sort of control who gets in and who doesn't because they can, you know, somebody is completely, I'm going to use Star Wars as, as an example because you're sitting right across from me. Sure, Matthew. that's fine. Um, you know, if somebody comes to you and is like, I've never seen Star Wars before, I, I don't know where to start, what, what should I do? You might say, oh, you know what? Go watch this movie and go watch this movie and read this book and it'll kind of get you going. The machete order? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the other option is you might say, you know what? You're not going to be interested in it. So beat it, kid. Uh, and obviously that, uh, you know, that's kind of a, a big negative deal. Can't um, tell me. I can't tell you how many times I've said that. Beat to, it, kid. Beat to it, some, kid. Some kid that's like Star Wars. Yeah, and you're like, get out of here. Get out of here. Um, on the surface, that seems pretty innocuous. You know, man, maybe you're keeping somebody out that you don't like. But what if you don't like women? What if you don't like people of color? What if you don't like uh, gay people? What if you don't like just everybody that's not already in your little group, and you keep all of them out because you're one of the gatekeepers to that community? What a cultural touchstone you right? hit on. Uh, obviously gatekeeping came to my knowledge because, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, it started to become a term used for keeping people out of a lot of fandoms, Star Wars being one of them mm -hmm. when, um, you know, I mean, people who were not traditionally portrayed as being Star Wars fans started to sort of come more out of the woodwork and become more popular. We can't let them in. Exactly. <laughs> and it turns out, you know, they've been fans from the beginning. They've always been there. It's just that, you know, people were intentionally trying to keep them out. Uh, it comes up a lot in a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, nerdlier pursuits. 
Um, Dungeons and Dragons is another area. I know I just went off a whole deep Nerd. end there where a lot of people are gate kept out of the community because they feel uncomfortable. Um, I think that one of the things that really drew me into this idea, uh, Chris, when you sort of first proposed it was, uh, I think jazz is a community that very much has a lot of tight gatekeeping in it. You know, if you show up and you're like, I really, I heard this song the other day on the radio and it was a, a some jazz musician I'd never heard of, Miles somebody, where, where should I start listening? What should I look up? You know, for many, many years, it has been a, a what's the right term? There have been a lot of jazz snobs sure. who keep if those people out of the community. Snobbery. And they say, oh, you don't know, you've never heard Miles Davis live in 62? I Well, I mean, clearly, you're not good enough to be in this community. Go go listen to a couple of his songs on Spotify and then move on. But I think that jazz is one of those communities that, that it has a lot of gatekeepers, and the, the ability to overcome those gatekeepers feels like this huge mountain of knowledge that you just have to absorb. You have to pull yeah. it all in in order to go back to those gatekeepers and say, oh yeah, I did listen to that album. Have you listened to this album? And you have to know names yeah. and you have to know dates and you have to know clubs and you have to know recording studios. And it's so such a massive mountain of information that it basically becomes this insurmountable thing to so many people. And they'll listen to a couple albums and then move on because they're like, I don't want to get into that. So the idea that you could do this series that's a great introduction to jazz and that hopefully can punch through that, I think it's great. Yeah. I'm so looking forward to doing this. I didn't write this in my introduction, but you know, I think everybody is familiar with jazz. And I think we all like what that which is familiar. I mean, uh, one of the things I do mention is are the the songs from the Peanuts shows by Vince Guaraldi. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, people might not understand that's, you know, or maybe they fully understand that that's jazz. And that can be the beginning. That's that's the open door to a whole world. The whole jazz snobbery thing, that is one thing I do mention is... Good. Know, yeah, I like jazz, dude. <laughs> you know, you, you, don't, you don't need these people in your life. So I, I try not to be that person. <laughs> uh, that's interesting, Kyle, because I have similar uh, notes, but I didn't know that that was actually what I was referring to. Yeah, there you so, go. So my knowledge of jazz is extensive, but only as extensive as I ever wanted it to mm-hmm. be. Uh, I was a gatekeeper kind of on my own listening to jazz. So I didn't start listening to jazz until my mid-teens, uh, only, but only then because I was playing drums in high school and I kind of needed that background. Um, I didn't get it, you know? I didn't get jazz. And to a large degree, I still don't get it. Even when I listened to it, however, I gravitated away from what would be considered classic jazz, like Coltrane, Monk, Parker, Davis, those guys, and moved towards more fusion areas because I was still a rock guy at heart. And that still lended itself to there. It was, it, listening to it became very utilitarian for me. Yeah. Like I listened to it uh, to learn it, not really to enjoy it. Um, and I loved the imp- improvisational aspect of it, but not even that much. Like I liked it, but I didn't really love it because it sometimes felt like it was just like noodling. You know, this may be why I loved rock so much is because even progressive music, because it felt like there was an end goal in mind. And jazz always felt like it could go on forever. And they only stopped because it kind of ran its course, not because it was actually ever set up that way to end. Um, I don't know if, have you seen, you've seen the movie Soul, right? I actually haven't. Yet. You haven't seen it yet? Have you seen it, Chris? I have. I yeah. thought it was wonderful. And, and it is excellent. But the, they talk very specifically about, you know, the zone where the, where jazz musicians go to kind of enter the song and disappear into that land. And it always just seemed like such a a, a far out concept for me to get because it, it what there was no like end goal as a, as a composition. It was very unstructured. And so... What I'm hoping to get out of this series is maybe a little more understanding and appreciation for the style itself as an art form and less as something that I just listened to because I had to. Hmm. So it's interesting. Yeah. Interesting, huh? Yeah, I, <laughs> the, the, the first thing people should know is that I am not a musician. So I, I come. To I think this that's music good, the, though. I think that's yeah, great. From, from a completely different angle. Well, that's good because uh, jazz was actually temporarily ruined for me 
by somebody who has a very formal education in jazz. I uh, I kind of found jazz. I was a weird kid. I listened to like classical music and organ music and like big band music when I was in my teen years uh, and a little bit of rock, but uh, that came a little bit later. But uh, when I went away to college, I had this opportunity to, we had to take these, uh, I forget exactly what they called them, but one was like a world politics credit and one was like a, a sociology credit. And for one of my credits, I, I saw this intro to jazz class. And I was like, this is going to be great. This is going to be so cool. Uh, and I took the class and I, I was super excited. It was the one class that I was super excited for. And the book that I had to buy was, I think, like 300 bucks. But it came with maybe 10 uh, CDs that were all... Um, they were all like compilation CDs. So it was like, oh, for chapter one, you're going to listen to like tracks one through eight on this CD. And then chapter two, you're going to listen to track nine and nine through 11 and one through two on the second CD or whatever. And it was very cool. I literally sat down and listened to all the CDs from beginning to end, found a whole bunch of new artists that I, I liked. I was like, oh, this is great. Got to the first day of the class and the professor came walking in and stood up in front of the class and he's like, let's listen to this piece. And I don't even remember what the, the piece of music was, but he played it. And played the whole thing. It was like seven minutes long. And then he stopped it and he's like, all right, so let's talk about it. And somebody raised their hand and is like, I love how that makes me really feel like the beginning is very upbeat and then the middle is really slow and then the end is upbeat again. And it really made me feel like you kind of went through these feelings. And he's like, well, that's completely wrong. You don't feel anything. Uh, you have to talk about how technically they were able to do all this stuff. Uh, who, <laughs> else, who else has an opinion about this? And then it was just like... Class is just totally it quiet. Sounds like nobody else has an opinion he's like, about well, that. Just him. I guess you didn't. Uh, I guess you didn't really absorb it. Let's listen to it again. And so he played it again. Oh no! And we all sat there, you know, listening to this song again for like six or seven minutes. And then he's like, "So how do you, you know what? What are you technically? How do you think that these artists were were doing this?" And a couple of people were like, "Well, you know, I mean, obviously it's jazz, so a lot of this was improv." And he's like, "But do, how do you think that they really understood the technicalities of being able to do this?" Oh, and it just, no. that was the whole class. <laughs> Jazz and is ruined. I stupidly, at the time, I was I was like, well, I, I'm signed up for this. I have to take it now. And so I struggled through the whole semester I did. I think I got a D minus in that class. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was like, it was the worst grade I could get without failing. And that was only because I did a bunch of extra credit, which the extra credit, to his credit, the extra credit was really cool because it was like, you have to go watch a live jazz performance. And every time you got did that, you got like 15 points of extra credit, All right. which was the same as like acing a quiz. So I think I went and saw five or six live performances <laughs> and we were supposed to be limited to like four. I think I saw, like I said, like five or six and, and convinced him to give me the extra credit so I would pass. But uh, yeah, that really beat the love of jazz out of me for a while. And uh, thankfully, a few years after that, I started to find um, Japanese jazz bands. Uh, we talked in one of our... Um, Audio, uh, judo, judo shop shops. episodes uh, about a band called Soil and Pimp Sessions that uh, they describe themselves as uh, Japanese death jazz. Uh, wow. It's very frantic. It's it's nuts. <laughs> um, but jazz sort of uh, has this weird little niche in Japan as a, a type of music that took off. Uh, and I found a lot of those bands and it kind of regrew from there and I got back more interested in traditional jazz. And so thankfully came back around after that uh, few year dry spell. But so we're excited. Yeah, very excited. We're excited to see how this goes. Well, hopefully uh, this series will be the antithesis of what you guys have learned. <laughs> um, <laughs> especially Kyle. I mean, that. <laughs> just sounds ass backwards. Yeah. Yep. And it's it's always been tough for me to even talk about that because I don't like teachers are one of the very few people. I don't like to badmouth anybody who's a teacher because they, yeah. they put a lot on the line to do that most of the time. Chris's and wife is a teacher. And there you go. Yeah. And I'm sure whatever subject she teaches, she probably loves it, right? She had grade. She there you go. She had to love dealing with kids, right? I mean, I assume yes. she didn't hate children and then was like, I'll become a teacher. <laughs> that would have been weird. Right. That would have been weird. <laughs> Yes. I just want to torture these small humans every single day. So I'm going to become a teacher. That nobody does that. Well, well, somebody does Presumably that. nobody does that. But uh because of that, I mean, I again, I don't want to ever badmouth the teacher, but I think that it was just such a negative experience in that class and it really just I feel like everybody came out of that with a greater hatred of jazz music <laughs> than a better understanding Jeez. of it. And it was it was really? unfortunate. All right. But who knows. Okay, well then, let's not delay this any longer. Shall we? Kyle and I are happy to present to you in association with the Pantheon Podcast Network and the Audio Judo Podcast, your host Chris, and the pilot episode 
of Audio Judo Does Jazz. When March 2020 happened, and I had been sent home from my job like so many millions of others out there, it felt like God, Mother Nature, and the planet Earth took us all aside and told us all to slow down, to reflect, to not add to all that crap that had been suffocating our lives for years. Go home and spend time with your family, they seem to say. Figure out what's important in your life. Change this world in a positive direction. What are you going to do to help right this ship? How are you going to help bring people together? So much had gone wrong with our country. We had allowed all the distractions to veer our attentions away from all the important issues facing us. We didn't solve any problems. We allowed more to be created. Instead of coming together and attempting to form a more perfect union, we allowed our differences to bubble up to the surface. We allowed those perforated lines of division in our country to be irritated, inflamed, provoked, and manipulated. To refer back to a Bob Dylan song, we were not busy being born. We were busy dying. What happened? I looked around and saw so much anger, so much distrust. I saw us as a nation consumed by politics and social media. I saw my reality and the reality of about half the people I knew battling it out because one man, two sides, bias, media, I don't know. In Simon and Garfunkel's song, America, Paul Simon sings, Kathy, I'm lost, I said, but I knew she was sleeping. Well, we are lost, or have been at the time I wrote this. I would like to help change that. I would like to help mend the divide. I would like to bring some positivity into the world. I would like to help us all agree on some very basic things. I would like to bring a little light in your life. I think I've got the first stepping stone towards a better country. I bring you an introduction to Jazz Podcast. You laugh now but I think it's possible. Who am I? I'm not a musician. I don't really understand the differences and relationships between notes and chords and keys. It would be hard for me to describe the differences between ragtime and stride piano and hot jazz and swing and big band and bebop and hard bop and modal jazz and free jazz and fusion. I am not an expert. I haven't published articles and jazz periodicals written the liner notes to classic albums. I am not up to date on who all the hot musicians currently are. In short, I am no authority. So who am I? I'm just like you. Someone who wants to hear something cool, something fresh, something that adds joy to my life. Jazz is different from pop and rock music. It's hard to anticipate. It's difficult to memorize. Because I've built up enough of a collection through the years, and because I don't know what I'm going to hear next, it always sounds fresh to me. When I put on a record, all I know is that it's going to be good because an earlier incarnation of me spent an intense six or seven years listening to just about everything I could get my hands on. Jazz gave me options. To anyone out there who is just beginning or is a casual but interested listener, or if you just don't know where to begin, I'd like to share as much as I can with you, pass on a few strategies, and help develop an approach to jazz that will help enrich your musical life. Blakey and his Jazz Messengers, off of the Monin album, recorded in 1958. 
This is not to be confused with Charles Mingus's Monin, which is a different kind of Monin, but just as memorable. It's funny. On the day I told my wife, and later on my brother, that I would be doing this podcast, they both congratulated me and then said, don't be that guy. What guy, I asked. You know, that guy. A pushy, snobby, self-righteous, born again, you gotta listen to jazz, dude, guy. Someone who's selling something no one wants to buy. It seems one of the great impediments to people coming to jazz are the other people who love jazz. Well, I won't be that guy. I don't have ulterior motives. I'd just like to start a dialogue with you. Let's have a conversation. What are some other reasons people don't like jazz? I asked my boss, and she says, plainly speaking, I do not like the sound of it. (laughs) It's still funny to me. It's too chaotic for my taste. When I hear jazz, I generally cringe inside and feel the need to make it stop as quickly as possible. And yet, she has a great fondness for big band music. One of my best friends is somewhat confused by it, because he likes Vince Guaraldi's Peanuts songs, and who doesn't? But he can't get his arms around it with all the different labels. Early, smooth, bluesy, big band. My brother told me he liked some of it, especially the catchier swinging songs, but didn't like all that honking and farting music that he's heard. He didn't enjoy when musicians played for themselves or showed off to other musicians. He liked when the music on the stage connected with the audience. So in my massive research and asking three people I know, one, there's a confusion as to exactly what jazz is. Two, there's a disconnect at times between the musicians and the audience. Three, you have to really seek it out on the radio if it's even there at all. Based on the most popular radio stations that we've been presented as an audience, we never had a chance for it to filter into us like we have with pop and rock and R&B and hip-hop and country music. Four, it's not often danceable music like it was in the first half of the 20th century when it was the pop music of its day. Five, there's little or no connection to the artists themselves with little or no name recognition or any idea of their history or personality. Six, since it's basically just instrumental music, there's no song title recognition at all with no choruses worming themselves into our brain and driving the point home. Seven, not every song swings like Sing, Sing, Sing by Benny Goodman or In the Mood by Glenn Miller. Eight, I think some rock fans who like their guitars loud and out in front discover that jazz guitar is not loud and is often relegated to the back, to the rhythm section, and it's often lower in the mix, merely adding color. Nine, There's a language or structure to jazz songs that seems largely indecipherable to the casual listener. And 10, like classical music, there's an ocean of it out there. And knowing where to begin is the hardest part. It's far too overwhelming, and with a world full of other distractions, is it really worth our time or money to investigate? So yeah, jazz has a lot going against it. My aim in this podcast is to break down and demystify all these problems that bump up against jazz. Let's start breaking down these problems together on this journey. Let's find an area in jazz that you can enjoy. If we can do that, we can find a process in breaking down other problems in life, larger problems in life. But I do apologize, brother. There will be some honking and farting along the way. I think it starts in episode three. That was Take 5 by Dave Brubeck, a piano player who recorded that on a Time Out album in 1959, a magical year, 1959, which we will get to in later podcasts. If you go to the Jazz Reddit on any given day, you will find someone new to jazz requesting album recommendations. This podcast is in large part a response to that. When more experienced listeners respond, they are providing a great service. They give a direction, a 
name, a title, a clue. However, it's rare when you read any kind of eventual response. What are the results? What kind of experience did that person have? What kind of assessment was there? I always wonder if the album or the genre itself stuck with that potential new listener. Did the recommendation help? Did they find great joy in that record? I don't know. When people are looking for recommendations, are they looking for the best album, whatever that means, the greatest album of an artist's career, according to fans, the most critically acclaimed album, according to critics, the most artistically satisfying album, according to the artist, the album some dude is hot on at the very moment, something random, or the album that is most accessible to you, the new listener. These could be seven different albums. So you have to ask yourself, what are you looking for? In the end, it's virtually impossible to recommend the best records to a complete stranger you've never met who merely exists as text on a screen when it's likely you'll never correspond with them again. I think if I give you a little background, tell a few stories, give you a little context, we might start a connection to the artists and the music itself. In the recommendations I make to you, I'm going to lean more towards the most accessible albums the artists have recorded. I want to give you open doors, give you options for your own research, should you become the least bit interested in what I have to say. Recommendations are merely directions. They're not gospel. There is no cool kit of jazz records every aspiring hipster should own. I will never tell you what you should listen to or should like, or worse, stay away from. Well, I might. You never know. But maybe one or two. That would make me that guy my wife and brother warned me about. I do think there are some places that are better to start out with than others. Utilize this series of podcasts as a springboard for your own journey, for your own research. So how about some strategies? One, in the most 21st century way, enter best jazz albums into Google or any other browser. You will see some of the better, more famous, largest selling, more historically important, or critically acclaimed jazz albums that have been released. I don't know that there's an exact list of what these are, but I'm sure there's somewhat of a canon out there, many of which will be discussed in my podcast. That said, in one strategy, I've rendered my podcast unnecessary. That's okay. It's not about me. It's your journey. Two, you can go to the Jazz Reddit and sample some of the songs and videos posted there. Write down some of the recommendations offered. There are a lot of songs and artists I've never heard of, and a lot of artists, songs, and albums I'm aware of that won't be mentioned in my podcast. Again, I guess I'm pointing you away from my podcast for some reason. Three, pick up a book like The Penguin Guide to Jazz. It's what I did when I started out. It's huge, hundreds of pages long, with thousands of titles to choose from. I scoured that thing for every four and five star recording and sought out each one I could find. It is just a guide. If you go that route though, just be aware that not every four or five star ranking will sound like a four or five star album to you. Four, I don't know if I had the gall to do this myself, but go random. Find one album from every artist you hear about and select anything by them. You might not hit on every album, but you might not hit on every album you had a guide for either. I'm sure each album will bring its discoveries, though. Five, you could watch the Ken Burns documentary on jazz. You'll get more history and hear more personal stories than I will be able to provide. You'll get someone with a cooler voice than I narrating the entire story of jazz. You'll get the opinions of experts, the insights of musicians. You have a lot more black and white footage than I can provide. Absolutely none of these strategies so far are involving my podcast. Six, you could very easily zero in on one artist and make a study out of them. At one point, I had over 80 CDs and vinyl albums that had John Coltrane on them. You could easily make your own study of Duke Ellington's career. I intend to do that myself one day. Miles Davis is an easy and varied choice. His music changed a lot over the years. It's almost like covering eight different artists in one. Sonny Rollins recorded for 50 to 60 years. You might not get the full breadth of jazz by listening to him, but you could certainly become an expert 
and him if that's what is important to you. Seven, like me, you could narrow your search down to five to ten artists. This podcast is largely the result of that strategy. You branch outward when you read up on their past histories, read their liner notes, and check to see the other musicians that played with them. Or eight, finally, you could become a fan of the Crystal Isle method of approaching jazz. I'm not entirely sure what that is yet, as it's currently being written, but we'll both discover it along the way. I would love to hear your findings as you go along. Please write me at chris at audiojudo.com and let me know what you find. That was Mercy, Mercy, Mercy by Cannonball Adderley from the Live at the Club album, recorded in 1966. I like the soulful rendering of the tune. I'm trying to get you from every angle I can here. Matt, from Audio Judo, prefers the Buddy Rich version, recorded live a couple years later. Largely led by Buddy Rich's drums, for those who don't know, he's one of the best drummers ever. It's more up-tempo, funkier, and has a much larger sound. So again... I like providing you with some options. My favorite historical period of jazz is between 1955 and 1965 for several reasons. The first reason is that this represents the bulk of my favorite artist's career, that being John Coltrane. Actually, most of the artists I'm going to talk about hit their peaks during this period. It was also the right time for recording technology. In the early days of recorded music, technology only allowed the recordings of songs to be up to three minutes per each side of the record. They released songs on 78s up until the early 1950s. For a short period of time in the early 50s, they released songs on 10-inch records that allowed in upwards of 10 minutes of recording on each side. With the advent of the 12-inch record, about 15 to 20 minutes could be found on each side of the disc, thus allowing every soloist to stretch out more if they wanted. I love the sound of the recording studios from 1955 to 1965. For me, the drums never sounded any better than they do before or after this period. Due to the limits of technology, due to the muddied sound you sometimes hear, I'm not always a huge fan of earlier recordings. That said, if you want to check out the best music from the 1920s, I highly recommend you listen to Louis Armstrong's Hot Fives and Hot Sevens recordings from 1925 to 1928. If there were a Mount Rushmore of jazz, Armstrong would clearly belong on that rock. His ability stood head and shoulders above everyone else during this period. One of three things are sure to happen. One, you'll love it and want to listen to more artists from the 20s. Two, you'll enjoy what you hear, but that will be enough for your curiosity. Or three, it won't mean a thing. To your ears, it just doesn't have that swing. If you want to explore the swing era of the 1930s, there are several big bands that kept our countries going through the Great Depression. I highly recommend Count Basie's Decca recordings from 1937 to 1939. In my research, no band sounded hotter than they did, led by Count Basie on piano and Lester Young on tenor saxophone. Benny Goodman also had a pretty great period in the 1930s. His racially integrated band including Teddy Wilson on piano, Lionel Hampton on vibes, and Gene Krupa on drums, kicked ass. There's also Glenn Miller, Woody Herman, Artie Shaw, Harry James, and the Dorsey brothers, but I can't really speak to them. My grandparents loved them, of course, but I didn't know enough to ask about them back then. If you want to explore more of the big band era of the 1940s, I highly recommend 
Duke Ellington's Blanton-Webster Band from 1940 to 1942. Blanton refers to bassist Jimmy Blanton, and Webster refers to Ben Webster on tenor sax. Ellington recorded in the 1920s and 30s as well, but for my taste, I didn't take to him until I heard a bunch of his recordings from the 40s. Ellington is another artist who belongs on the Mount Rushmore of jazz. As I said earlier, he would be an interesting artist to study, since he never slowed down, and I have some records of his from the 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s that are great. I just don't have enough expertise yet in digging into him further. Perhaps it's something I might delve into in the future. If you listen to these recordings, compare and contrast the sound to other recordings in the 1950s and 60s. Do you prefer one sound over another? Does the difference in technology not bother you either way? I'd be interested to find out. Though there are records from the 1970s I enjoy, I am not as huge a fan. Part of it is because a number of my favorite musicians were either dead or on the way out. I don't know that I love the introduction of all the electric instruments either. I don't know that I love the jazz fusion that took over, though I am willing to explore it more. That said, if you're looking for a jazz recording that rocks, might I recommend the Mahavishnu Orchestra album, The Inner Mounting Flame, recorded in 1971. John McLaughlin is a monster on guitar, and Billy Cobham is a monster on drums. Also, I am not a huge fan of vocals in jazz. I know that this means I'm cutting out a large portion of classic big band music. That means staying away from Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra, and the like. For the most part for me, especially in my younger days, it seemed that the vocals just got in the way of what I wanted to hear. That said, if you ever watched the show The Crown on Netflix, you might be familiar with the heartbreaking song Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. There's a scene in which it is sung by King George and Princess Margaret in an early episode. It broke my heart to hear it, and I found a version with Ella Fitzgerald that knocks me out. I'm wild again, beguiled again, a simpering, whimpering child again, bewitched, bothered, and bewitched. My senior year of college, my friend Mike Austin came bounding into our apartment. Give me names, give me names, he said. What do you mean, give me names, I asked. He said he had an interview at the college radio station for a jazz show, and he wanted to be prepared for the interview. He thought if we could just give him some names of some artists, that he would sound like he knew what he was talking about. What a preposterous idea. Merely dropping names like Miles, Monk, Mingus. Duke, Count, Satchmo, Sonny, Train, Bags, Ornette, Tatum, Prez, Bird, Diz, Hawk, Brownie, Dolphy, Cannonball, Fats, Jacko, Lockjaw, Jelly Roll, Dexter, Rasan, and Django. You know, maybe it wasn't a preposterous idea after all, now that I think about it. I mean, maybe it's ridiculous to name drop in order to ace an interview or for light conversation around the dinner table. But if you're going to invest your time and money and heart and soul into something like jazz, it's a good idea to get to know some of the names. In the liner notes of every record, you will see the personnel that made that particular music. If you look long and hard enough, you will notice some of the same names over and over again. You also begin to notice that all the best musicians played with all the other best musicians. While it's not true all the time, I'm sure there's a mathematical theorem that suggests when the best musicians pair off with the other best musicians, they end up making the best records. Miles played with Bird and Train and Max Roach and Sonny Rollins and Monk and Mingus a couple times as well. Bird played with Miles and Max and Diz. Mingus had some of his best dates with Dolphy and he also ran a record label with Max Roach and so on and so on. It's safe to say that if you start seeing certain names in the personnel area, the liner notes, it's probably going to be a good record. If you see Max Roach, 
Elvin Jones, Tony Williams, Art Blakey, or Roy Haynes playing drums, it's probably going to be a good record. If you see Paul Chambers, Ray Brown, Ron Carter, or Jocko Pistorius on bass, it's probably going to be a good record. While I'm mentioning a lot of sax players in my series, one of the better sax players that may only slightly be heard from is Joe Henderson. He played on a lot of great Blue Note records in the 1960s. One of my general rules of thumb is that if Freddie Hubbard is playing trumpet as one of the sidemen on a record, it's probably going to be a great record. If Bobby Hutcherson is playing vibes, you're in for a treat. That was Dexter Gordon on tenor saxophone playing one of my favorite ballads, Darn That Dream. Long Tall Dexter started out in the 1940s and was a huge influence on Coltrane and many more saxophonists that came after him. He was in a movie called Round Midnight that came out in 1986, somewhat worth a watch. There's still so much more of his music I'd like to explore as well. Now, I never liked country music. In the early 1990s, in my late teens and early 20s, I used to work with my dad in the summers. On the way to work, when he grew sick of the same 25 to 30 songs they would play on the oldies station, he would turn on the country station. Inevitably, though it had been a hit a handful of years before in 1987, Randy Travis's song, Forever and Ever Amen, would inevitably come on. When I heard that voice of his, Forever and Ever Amen, it was so damn earnest. You could hear the dirt and the dust and the grit of the country roads in that voice. You just knew that he probably said words like, ma'am and bye y'all. I was, I was very silly back then, and I, I hope that doesn't sound awful to me, but something about it just rubbed me the wrong way. It was different to what I knew and what I understood. I also heard a lot about Garth Brooks in those days. He's selling tens of millions of albums. He's breaking records. Is being mentioned in the same breath with the likes of the Beatles? And that just crossed a line with me. I got all defensive. His mere presence threatened my worldview and my personal champions. I wanted nothing to do with country music. And for a good dozen years or so, I successfully avoided it altogether. Then I met the love of my life, Thea. Born in Kentucky, she and her family came up to Michigan in the early 80s. Her older brother had southern rebel blood coursing in his veins and country music in his heart. He would try to get me into country music every time I saw him. Hank Williams Jr.'s song, Family Tradition, and Garth Brooks's Friends in Low Places tended to come out at every big family get-together at one point or another, and they found their way into our wedding reception. I went along with it, and I enjoyed the tradition of wrapping our arms around one another and swaying to the left and swaying to the right. But it didn't mean that country music had infiltrated my heart. In 2008, we went to visit her younger brother in Nashville. I can't remember if we spent all day in one bar or if we moved about from one bar to another, but I know we spent a lot of time at Robert's Western World right there on Broadway. A young band took the stage a couple of guitars, bass, and drums. The regular rock set. The two guitarist singers stepped up to the mic and started, I've got a tiger by the tail, it's plain to see. I won't be much when you get through with me. Yep, I sang that. They rocked up a Buck Owens song from the mid-60s called Tiger by the Tail. That song and that band hooked me over the next hour of music. Three, four, five bands came up and played, each with their own brand of country, each with their own sound. I think someone performed the Graham Parsons song Hickory Wind from the late 60s. Someone pulled out some Elvis Rockabilly songs. I recognized a George Jones song called White Lightning. And apparently, 
there's a rule that everyone plays Hank Williams Sr. songs, because I heard a lot of them that day. It was a revelation. One of the most important days of music listening in my life. A whole world I had disdained for the first 36 years of my life opened up to me in just one day. I purchased a slew of classic country records from the 50s, 60s, and 70s the week I got home. Timing in music is everything. I just hadn't been ready for country music. You know, I I recently listened to that Randy Travis song when I knew this story would be told. It's a charming song. Delightful, even. Who was that young man who fought off country music for so long? What was he really fighting? I bring all this up in order to tell you that it's possible to open up your heart to jazz. To reference Rocky IV for just a second, If I can change, and you can change, everybody can change. Whether it's our deeply ingrained prejudices, our recently discovered disdain, anger, and distrust for people on the other side of the aisle, or if it's something little like jazz music, I think everyone has the possibility to change their views on something. Steve Lacey, a young soprano sax player, played with the great Thelonious Monk in 1960. He kept a list of tips from one of the great geniuses of modern music, and the list has been published. One of the tips is that a note can be as small as a pin or as big as the world. It depends on your imagination. I'm sure Monk meant something by it, and Lacey took something from it, and now I'm going to let you in and what it means to me. What I said earlier in this podcast about mending this country with this jazz podcast, it's probably an impossibility. I mean, we're talking jazz here. But I am putting out something positive in the world, I think, as misguided or delusional as my ambitions might be. If I can do this, you can too, whatever your positive notion may be. Finally, I remember on the jazz Reddit one day, Someone complaining that everyone recommends old records by old artists long since dead. He said that jazz was best experienced live, in person, and that we should all support the artists that are out there plugging away. And I agree. As small as an audience as it has these days, it's important to support it to keep the flame alive. It's as relative today as it was 50 or 70 or even 100 years ago. There is a line that goes back more than a century now that connects us with our past. We are connected generation after generation. Unfortunately, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. My French is terrible. But any Rush fan will tell you that that means the more that things change, the more they stay the same. We are connected by both our triumphs and achievements as well as our tragedies. We are still working our way through issues that have been going on forever. We are still working our way against prejudices. There's a direct line from the devastating lyrics sung by Louis Armstrong in the Fats Waller song, What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue, to now, as are the lyrics to Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday. All that relates to the revolutionary advances of the bebop from Bird and Diz. It relates to the night Miles Davis had been beaten bloody by a white cop because he didn't like that Miles had escorted a pretty white woman to a cab outside Birdland and Miles didn't move on as he requested. Miles had just released Kinda Blue eight days prior, the biggest selling jazz album in history. And yet, he was beaten bloody. It relates to Malcolm, Martin, and the Black Panthers and the free jazz recorded in the 1960s. It relates to every life lost that has inspired the Black Lives Matter movement. It's not lost on me that I'm a white guy talking about an art form created, innovated, populated, and perpetuated largely by African Americans. It's not lost on me that I've learned about the culture it emanates from books, from the confines of my safe suburban life. Books like Ellison's Invisible Man, Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, and the autobiography of Malcolm X. I can think of no better way of bringing people together than by sharing some music, telling some stories, talking about our passions, 
and passing some knowledge on to you. It's the kind of world I want to live in and the kind of world I want to pass on to my children. So what better way to open your world up to some new music by filling your ears up with the genius, the freshness, and the fire of some old music? God bless you. All my love, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Matthew from Audio Judo here again. I feel like you got right down to the root about why some of us feel so disconnected from jazz. And I think this podcast is going to open a lot of doors into the world of jazz for a lot of us who may be disillusioned. It's great stuff. I want to thank all of you for joining us for the first episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz. If you would like to get a hold of Chris, you can find him on Twitter at Audio Judo Jazz or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Audio Judo Jazz. If you are looking for more personal attention about selections or any other questions about jazz, you can send him an email directly to chris, that's C-H-R-I-S, at audiojudo.com. On further episodes, we will have a recommended listening list for you so you can explore some of the selections that Chris mentions and some additional suggestions from him. If you are new to the Audio Judo family, welcome and thanks for being a part. If you want to hear more from us, please check our episodes out on audiojudo.com or anywhere podcasts are podcast. The next episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz is all about legendary jazz trumpeter Miles Davis, and I'm really looking forward to that one. I think it's going to be great. Until next time, take care, everyone. 